Most of us have sort of an aversion to big words. It's not that we don't know big words or understand big words. Could use big words if we chose to. But typically, we don't like them. We don't use them. We talk in common terms. We just use regular words, normal language. Uh, for, for lots of us, many of the big words that we have learned have come from our religious studies, from reading the Bible and trying to understand some of the principles that are set forth there. And so we know big words and we understand them, and many of them are based in Bible truths that we have learned. For instance, we might talk about the characteristics of God. For instance, uh, if we use the word omnipotent, well, that's a big word, and we know what it means, but we'd be just as likely to say, God is all-powerful. That makes better sense, doesn't it? Or if we talked about the uh, omnipresence of God, we understand that word. It's not a word that we would typically use, but we know that that means God is everywhere all the time. There's nothing, uh, there's no place you can go to escape God. Or we might talk about the word omniscience, the omniscience of God. We know that word. It's a big word, but it's a Bible word. We understand it to mean all-knowing. Actually, I'm not sure that word's found in the Bible, but the principle is found in the Bible, and we understand it to mean that God is all-knowing. We typically would just say it that way. God knows everything. The Bible definitely makes that claim about God, that he knows everything. In the passage that Trent read for us earlier, I'm just going to read part of it, just a clip. You get the idea. Certainly God knows it all. Psalm 139, beginning verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting, mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou comfortest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Surely God knows it all. He knows everything. He sees all. And when we think of that truth, the connection we make, of course, is not just that he knows everything in general. The psalmist is talking about he knows everything about me personally. And we need to understand that. God knows us. He knows all about us. And so with that principle in mind, the omniscience of God, the all-knowing nature and character of God, I think our title will seem a little bit strange this morning because what we want to talk about is some things that God does not know. I thought you just said he knows everything. Well, I hope we can clarify that in a minute as we make some explanation. Thanks for being here this morning. We're especially grateful to see every one of you and glad that you've come to join with us in this period of worship to God. We hope and pray that he's glorified by everything that we do this morning. Now, that's our primary objective. We certainly hope that every person here is also edified, instructed, and built up in the most holy faith. That's an important priority, too. But we want God to be pleased with our worship. We think that we accomplish that by worshiping him as he is prescribed in the pages of the New Testament. So we're trying to have a Bible basis, Bible authority for everything we do in our worship this morning. And if that, if that should raise a question in your mind, we'd be glad to entertain that question. Please ask it. We'd be glad to talk to you about why we're doing what we do the way we do it. Let's talk about some things that God does not know. Again, we just said, I thought God knows everything. I believe you'll begin to explain, uh, understand, sort of a play on words we're making 
Here's some things that God does not know. For instance, God does not know a sin that he does not hate. For lots of people, uh, they're not comfortable associating the word hate with God. For them, God is just exclusively love. God is a loving God. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, that's without question. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, it says very plainly and clearly, God is love. And so there's no doubt that God is a loving God, but there's, there's other aspects of God that need to be taken into consideration. And one of them is that God hates sin. And the Bible tells us that. In a very familiar passage to us in Proverbs chapter 6, beginning verse 16, these six things doth the Lord hate. Notice the word hate. There's the word hate. There's some things the Lord hates. What does he hate? Yea, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh life, and he that soweth discord among brethren. There's the word hate. God hates sinful things. I don't think this is a, a full listing. I believe we could say in general, God hates sin, all sin, because he understands what it does to us when we sin. Because he hates sin, then we ought to hate sin as well. David did in Psalm 119, verse 104, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And so the psalmist said, God hates sin, and I hate sin as well. We should be that way. In Psalm 97, verse 10, Ye that love the Lord hate evil. That's what we're supposed to do. I would simply ask us all to maybe consider, do we really? Do we really hate sin? Does it repulse us? Uh, uh, are we comp completely turned off by it? Do we hate it? Or is it possible that we try to get too close to sin? You know, we're not really, we don't really hate it. We know we're not supposed to do it, but actually we'd like to get comfortable with it. We'd like to get as close to it as possible without sinning. Uh, that's dangerous thinking. We need to be as God is, that is, he hates sin. God does not know a sin that he does not hate. But having made that point, the second point we would make is God does not know a sinner that he does not love. This is what is so often misunderstood. In our day and time, of course, we hear so much about homosexuality in the news, and there's a big push for homosexuals to be accepted and that their lifestyle is to be approved by us all. And so if we ever speak out against homosexuality, the accusation is made, we hate them. We hate homosexuals. And that's just absolutely not true. We're trying to imitate God in this matter. God hates sin. He hates the sin of homosexuality. But God loves the homosexual and wants something better for him than that. And that's the way we should be. God hates sin, but he loves sinners. And, you know, really... It's a good thing that God loves sinners because that describes us all. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. In fact, we should not console ourselves into thinking we, we're okay because we're better than lots of other people. That kind of, uh, of thinking does no good at all. Uh, we are all sinners. And what we deserve is to be lost forever in hell. We're sinners deserving damnation that's where we are. But thankfully, God loves sinners. And He loves us even though we don't deserve it. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, it wasn't that we were so wonderful and deserving. We're such great people. We're so special. God loves us. No. God loved us even though we didn't deserve it. God loved us because even though we were despicable sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a great thing. Of course, the most famous of the statements concerning God's love for us all, for all sinners, is in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a truly wonderful thing. And we should be grateful continually that God loved us. Even though we're sinners, God loved us in sending His Son to die for our sins. And so God does not know a sin that He does not hate, but He doesn't know a sinner that He does not love. And I want to say that we need to work hard to imitate Him in both aspects. It's not easy, but it's, it's the goal we need to strive for, to hate sin, but to love sinners. What's some other things that God does not know? God does not know a different plan of salvation. When I say a different plan of salvation, I mean one different than that which is revealed in His Word. Um, throughout the ages, men have tried to come up with many ways to be saved. Uh, some even take the position that everybody will be saved. You know, the universalist believes all will be saved. And so people have come up with all kind of flawed thinking about salvation. But the truth really is too plain to misunderstand. The truth is salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. In John 8, verse 24, Jesus said, If you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. And so a first necessity is that we must believe in Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God. Salvation is only possible through Jesus. God knows of no way that you can be saved without Jesus. But you know, when we make that point right there, that already excludes the majority of the world's population. The majority of the world's population does not believe in Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. But the Scripture is plain. There's no way to be saved without going to God through Jesus. And so... Muslims are excluded. Unbelieving Jews are excluded. Buddhists are excluded. Hindus are excluded. Man, we have already excluded the majority of the world's population because they don't believe in Jesus. You must believe in Jesus. There's no way of salvation without Jesus. But there's more than that. There's more than just believing in Jesus. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 7, verse 1? You ought to remember this. This is one of our memory verses, right? Jesus said, Not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. We have to do the will of the Father. Yes, you have to believe. Yes, you have to call him your Lord. But you have to do more than that. You have to do the will of the Father which is in heaven. It's more than just believing in Jesus, although that's necessary. You've got to be busy in obeying the will of the Father which is in heaven. James 1.25. By the way, that's another memory verse, isn't it? James 1.25. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. We've got to do the work. God has revealed to us what he wants us to do. We've got to believe in Jesus, 
And then we've got to be obedient. By the way, talking about memory verses, we've been working hard to memorize the plan of salvation. I'm going to try to recite it. You try to follow along with me. What is that plan of salvation? God knows of no other plan of salvation than the one he's revealed to us in his word. We've got to hear the truth. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We've got to believe. Hebrews 11:6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a reward of them that diligently seek him. We've got to repent of our sins. Jesus said, Luke 13, verse 3, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We have to confess, verbally confess, our faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Romans 10, 10, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We have to be baptized for the remission of sins. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And then we must be faithful until we die. Revelation 2, verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Uh, that's pretty clear, isn't it? The plan of salvation is clearly revealed in God's Word, and God doesn't know of a different one. Never revealed a different one to us. God has made known no other plan whereby a sinner could be saved. God hates sin, but he loves sinners, and he's made a plan of salvation. He knows of no other, or has revealed no other. But we could take that a step further. Having become a child of God, God knows of no better life than the one he has asked you to live as his disciple. A lot of people have, I think, a wrong view of God. It's just a, a sort of God is this mean ogre, who just hoping that he could have a chance to punish us, you know. I remember my first grade teacher, now that's a good while back, but I remember my first, I can't remember her name, but I remembered one unique characteristic of her. If you misbehaved at all, she had this long red pen that she marked papers with, she graded papers with, and if you did badly, if you misbehaved, she would come and wrap your knuckles with that red pen. Now, I think a teacher today would probably get in a lot of trouble for doing that, but more than once I had my knuckles wrapped by that first grade teacher. For, at, she was kind of mean. I mean, I, we, we all had the impression of her that she was pretty mean. And I think a lot of people view God that way. God's like that. You know, he's like that woman who liked to wrap you over the knuckles uh, if, if you did anything wrong. God is mean. And, and what he's done is he set up these rules just to see how rigorous he could be upon us, just how hard he could make it for us. He really wants to make our lives miserable. No. That's not right at all. That is not God. God is not like that. God is for us. God loves us. And God has made a way for us not only to be saved, but a way for us to live that he knows is best for us. Moses taught that back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. The Lord commanded us to, to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. That's what Moses said about the law that was being given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now, that's not our law today, but there's a principle there. It tells us about God. God has always been such a God that he, he wants what's best for his people. And he sets up rules that he knows will ensure that they'll have the best possible life. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, "...bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promised the life that now is." and of that which is to come. Notice, what's the promise of the Christian life? Well, it's the life to come, right? 
We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But notice, godliness is profitable all things, having promise of the life that now is. Living as a Christian is best for us right now. And we have the chance to go to heaven when this life is over as well. So when it comes to living the Christian life, we should not dread it. We should not seek to avoid it. We should live it, knowing that it enriches us. It makes us better and happier and more fulfilled when we live the way that God wants us to live. God does not know a better way of living than that which he has prescribed for the Christian. I think we could also say that God knows no stronger reasons that he can give us for obeying him. Uh, the first of the reasons we would mention is that God has prescribed hell and told us about it and warned us of going there. Uh, this is the first thing we want to stress. God certainly stressed it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What did Paul say? Well, he talked about judgment, right? We're going to, we're going to go before the judgment seat of Christ. We're going to receive for the things done in our body, good or bad. And knowing the terror of the Lord, men are persuaded to avoid that punishment. You get that? Paul is saying, I want to tell you, you should live faithfully because you do not want to face the terror of the Lord. You should be what he asked you to be. You should try your best to live the way he wants you to live because you do not want to face the terror of the Lord when it comes to judgment. Do you get that? As we've often pointed out, there's no one in the Scripture that mentioned hell more than Jesus did. Of all the references to hell in the New Testament, by far and away, the majority of them were made by Jesus himself in Matthew 25 when Jesus described the judgment scene. Beginning verse 41, he said, Then shall he say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, he cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And he concluded that discourse in verse 46, said, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. And so when we think about hell, that's one of the motivations that God wants us to consider. It's one of the reasons why he gave us that we should be obeying him. You know, once in a while, you hear people say, well, I know, I, I, I guess I'll just die and go to hell. Or, uh, you know, they, they seem resigned to that or accepting of that reality. I want to tell you, a person who says that does not comprehend the notion of hell. No one would willingly go there if they really understood the nature of hell. God has given us that warning. You don't want to go there. Do everything in your power to avoid that you don't want to go to hell. One of the strong reasons for obeying him is the, is the possibility of that punishment forever and ever in hell. We've talked lots of times about hell. And it's just almost hard to imagine a situation of such incredible torture and punishment made ultimately endlessly worse by the idea there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It'll never be over. You'll never get past it. Don't go to hell. But the great promise of God is that those who faithfully serve him will be able to go to heaven to be with him forever. You know, if you were devising a contest, let's say that you were devising a contest and uh, you want people to get involved, to participate. Well, if you're going to have such a contest, then you've got to make the prize good and desirable, right? Uh, 
if, if, you had a, uh, if you had this contest and you said the prize to the winner of the contest will be a bag of dirt, you think you'd get very many people to join, to sign up, to participate in the contest? What do you mean? That's, no, that's, that's of no value. I don't want that. Why would I want a bag of dirt? You know, I, got, I can get a bag of dirt anytime. I don't need to enter a contest to get a bag of dirt. So that would not be a good and desirable prize. Nobody would pursue it. If you want to have a contest and you want to get people to be motivated to be involved, you've got to give something worth having, right? Well, God wants us to get involved. He wants us to get involved in a life of service to Him. And He has offered the perfect prize, the ultimate prize. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy have begotten us again into a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. That's what we want, right? That's what God has held out as a possibility for us. If we will serve Him faithfully, this can be ours. Will you do that? Will you understand the value of that prize and will you seek it? God has given that as a strong reason for us to serve Him. Many think that Revelation 21 verse 4 describes at least what that will be like, that reward in heaven. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and shall be, uh, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Heaven will be a wonderful place for those who are able to receive that gift from God. And God wants us all to be there. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. God holds out heaven for the faithful. Well, think about it then. And again, we've obviously made sort of a, a play on words in our lesson this morning. Some things God does not know. Now, we, we understand God really is. What's that word we use? God is omniscient. God knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. We've sort of played on the idea that some things God doesn't know. What we mean, though, is things like this. He doesn't know a sin that he doesn't hate, but he doesn't know a sinner that he does not love. He doesn't know a plan of salvation other than the one that he revealed in his scriptures. He knows of no better life that we could live, and he knows of no better motivation for us to serve him than the fear of hell and the desire for heaven. What's your situation this morning? Are you right with God? We want you to think about your relationship with him right now and make sure it's right because in the final analysis, it's all that matters. Nothing else matters. If you're not right with God, then nothing else matters. And so if you're not yet a Christian, we beg you to think seriously about your need to obey that simple gospel plan of salvation that we described in our lesson this morning. If you've not done that yet, we hope you'll make that decision this morning without delay. We're ready to assist you. We'd be joyous to assist you in your obedience to the gospel. If you're a Christian already, but you've fallen away, think about hell. You don't want to go there. Think about the wonders of heaven. That's what you should desire. If you've fallen away from faithfully serving the Lord, we beg you to come back to him in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song. Oh,